Okay, well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and begin. So, come on in. You can stand if you want, I guess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again today and for your word. Please help us to understand it and to be humble as we do so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is our third week uh, of studying God's covenants throughout the whole Bible. And we've seen so far that God relates to his creatures by covenant. Remember what a covenant is, the definition I gave a few weeks ago, uh, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And by bond in blood, we mean what? Life and death are at stake. And sovereignly administered means God comes and makes the covenant. We don't go to him. He comes to us. He sets the terms and um, he's sovereign in doing so. So a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That theme runs all through the Bible and ties the whole Bible together. Last week, we looked at what I'm calling the universal covenant. And just to remind you what I meant by that and to clarify something real quickly here, what I meant by that is that God is king over all of creation. From the very act of creation, there's a covenant relationship between God and all of creation. Not just men, um, but men, mankind, angels, uh, rocks, lightning, kitty cats, all of it. He is king over all of creation because he is the creator. And because God is the king, because he's the covenant Lord over all of creation, every creature and every atom of the universe is duty bound to obey him. And these are the four things I said last week that the stipulations of the universal covenant are. Remember, covenants have um, requirements. They have stipulations um, that the parties of the covenant are required to do. We saw last week from scripture, creation is duty bound to exist at the command of the Lord God. So let there be light. There's light. Creation is duty bound to reveal the Lord God. The heavens declare the glory of God, for example. Creation is duty bound to obey the Lord God. And then creation is duty bound to worship the Lord God. And these are the duties imposed on creation because God is the Lord of creation. That's how it works. And as we saw last week, the inanimate creation, the inanimate creation, right? The rocks, the lightning, the clouds, the stars, cannot refuse to obey these creational duties, but there is a sense in which men and angels can refuse these duties. And when they refuse these duties, they suffer the sanctions that go along with breaking them, right? Now, obviously, men and angels cannot refuse to exist, but they can rebel against their existence. And that's what we, to, to keep their own domain of reality or his, he brings them into existence. He interprets everything. He upholds everything, including meaning. All of this comes from God. None of this is independent from God. And so all creation makes sense only in relation to him. This is why scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You cannot know anything truly 
apart from fearing and knowing him. And so all men and all nations are without excuse. We saw that in Romans 1 last week. All men everywhere at all times know the one true living God who made them, made them uh, because they are in fact in covenant with him. And instead of worshiping him and giving thanks to him, they turn away from him and worship the creation, right? Romans 1. They turn away from the creator and worship the creation. And in so doing, they suffer the sanctions of the universal covenant. Creatures want to worship creatures, right? That's what Romans 1 says. That's the essence of our rebellion that's universal on the part of mankind. Creatures want to worship creatures, okay, fine. What are the, what's the sanction, according to Romans 1, of creatures wanting to worship creatures? Of same worshiping same. What's the, what's the result of that? Yes, but it takes very particular form that's perfectly appropriate. Yeah, sodomy. Same, okay, same, you want to you worship creature? Creature, you want to worship creatures? Okay. The result of that is men will have sex with men and women will have sex with women. Same with same. Homo worship results in homo sex. You understand? And they will receive in their person, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. This is, this is what happens when you start breaking these things. Everything goes awful, and that's a, that's a direct judgment of God. Okay, enough of that. Uh, today we're going to turn from this general or universal covenant with all creation to God's covenant with our first father, Adam. Now, we're not actually going to get to this covenant with Adam today. Um, <clears throat> I tried to. I wanted to, I, I'd worked really hard to, but then I was, as I was putting this together, I realized there are things that are underneath this that we don't understand. And because we don't understand them, uh, we have to slow down and actually do some groundwork first, okay? And then this will pay off for us, not only next week when we talk about literally God's covenant with Adam, but it'll also pay off as we go forward because these themes actually, this framework actually comes up over and over again. The realities we're going to talk about today actually influence how you read the Bible generally. So this will help. I figured out how to make it work in our schedule, I think. We'll see. So instead of looking at God's covenant with Adam today, we're going to look at the setting or the context of this covenant by looking at what's actually going on behind Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is where we read about God making a covenant with Adam. And there's a whole lot going on behind Genesis 2, and if we miss what's going on behind Genesis 2, a whole lot of fog will roll in, okay? Fog that will just kind of, and you can kind of see what's going on through the fog, but, you know, it's foggy. And so we're going to try to clear some of that fog or hopefully do some work to clear the fog. There are three elements to the account that we're going to read next week in Genesis 2 um, that we have to understand some background to in order to really get what's going on. And these three things 
are the garden, the trees, and the serpent. All right? So the garden, we're going to talk about what's the deal with that? Why a garden? What does that even mean? What's going on there? The trees and the serpent. I'm actually, we're not really talking about these two today. We're going to talk about number one. But based on what I say today, we'll be able to understand next week the significance of the trees and what's the deal with the serpent. Okay? So these are some background information that we have to get in order to understand these things. These things are kind of important if you're going to understand Genesis 2 and 3 and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Revelation. Okay. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you some background. We need to understand these elements of the history. There are realities that Moses and the people of Israel would have understood that we probably do not understand. Okay? And as I said, if we don't understand these background issues, then the full realities of what's going on here will remain fuzzy. Okay, here's the first major background reality that we have to see in order to understand what's going on in Genesis 2 and 3. Here's the first one. Before the Lord God made man, he made an innumerable multitude of beings. An innumerable multitude of beings. Before he made man, before he made Adam. I'm not talking about the beings, uh, the creatures, the animals, I'm not talking about them, okay? I'm talking about another order of beings that is actually above man. In scripture, these beings go by many different names, right? We see these in the New Testament in Romans 8. Here's just And I'm just going to, we're just barely scratching the surface. I'm just giving you representative passages through the Old and New Testaments, okay? There's so many more that we could look at, but don't have time. Romans 8, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? And we just kind of believe easily just breeze right over passages like that. Are these real? Yeah. Angels, principalities, powers, I forgot that one. Men, what are they according to this, according to Paul? What are these things? What is everything in this list? A created thing. Okay? They're created, but they're not us. All right? In Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These aren't just mists and forces. You know, we we read powers and forces, but we're not talking about like magnetism and gravity, right? We're talking about Um, beings that we can actually wrestle against. All right. Another example, Colossians 1.16, for by him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
So these are creatures. Be very clear on this. They're creatures that Jesus himself made. All right? They're beings. They're sentient. sentient. They have thoughts and wills, and they can do things. Now, in the Old Testament, they go by other names. This is Job 38, uh, 4 to 7. This is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So here you have two different names. Speaking of the same uh, creatures, right? The morning stars and the sons of God, okay? Or they were there when, when what? What is he talking about? When God made the physical world, they were already there. They were there to see it and to sing for joy about it. You see that? They were there. Okay, here's another one, Psalm 89. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. So look at these, look at what's going on. There's an assembly of the holy ones, right? The sons of the mighty, the holy ones, where are they? What does it say, where are they? Hmm? Yeah, they're uh, in the skies. They're also in an assembly. We'll talk about that in a minute. They're in a council. And he's in the midst of them. All right. Now here's the thing. There are other names for these beings, other terms that are used to describe them. For example, Psalm 86, there is none, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. Okay, these beings, these same beings, are also called in scripture, gods. They're called gods, all over the place. Don't have the time to even begin to see this. Psalm 95, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. Exodus 12, 12. when God did everything that he did to the land of Egypt, he says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now think about that. Um, When we think of the gods of the nations, all right, Everyone, you're thinking of the gods of the nations. We can think of them in the, in the modern sense. We've got Allah. Hinduism has 
I think like a, some millions of gods, something crazy. Um, you think of the old Greek gods, you think of Zeus and, you know, Apollo and Athena and all those gods and goddesses, right? And then you can go back beyond them, back to, the, to Egypt here. You've got the gods of the ancient world. When we think of all those gods, what do we think? What, is our, what, what have we been trained to think about them? They're just, they're nothing. They're just fairy tales. It's, we're talking about the Easter bunny and, and leprechauns and, and Santa Claus or whatever, you know, same, same thing. Is that how the Bible thinks of them? No. Can you imagine? I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against, and against all the fairy tales of Egypt, I will execute judgments. No. We have the same thing in the New Testament. Second Corinthians, or yeah, Second Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the fairy tale of this world has blinded the minds of, unbe- of the unbelieving. No. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This comes into the New Testament. This kind of language. God's. So we tend to think that the gods of the nations are simply make-believe fairy tale non-entities, figments of pagans' imaginations. And again, this is not how the Bible depicts them. They are very real. They are personal. In other words, they are persons, right? They have thoughts, they have words, they have actions, they do things. They are wicked. Part of their great wickedness is that they demand and accept what? Worship from men. You remember in in the book of Revelation when John sees the angel in the book of Revelation? I can't remember if, if that angel is named or not. I don't think so. And what does he do when he sees this angel? Do you remember? He falls down and tries to worship. And what does that angel say? Don't do that. Worship God. That's what he says. Well, that's because this is a good angel, right? This is a good one. This is one who's, uh, whose allegiance is to the Lord. But these other gods, uh, their allegiance is not to the Lord. And when men worship them, they, 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 they like it. And they promote it. And they demand it. And they accept it. And they draw people away from worshiping the Lord God. These gods of the nations are bloodthirsty, evil, destructive entities who have a personal and unrelenting hatred for their maker, the Lord God Almighty. They are real and they're bloodthirsty. And we can't imagine, or we, we can't understand huge swaths of scripture if we simply deny their existence. and Just say, oh, no, 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 these are just make-believe, in, you know, figments of imagination. Look at Psalm 106. This is talking about the history of the nation of Israel. But they mingled with the nations 
and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. That's why I say they're bloodthirsty. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. But that's just in the Old Testament, right? 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul is talking about uh, things offered to idols in his day. So which idols, which gods are we talking about? Well, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, on and on. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now by idol here, we should think not the God behind the idol, but the thing. Uh, Idols were, the ancient world, the pagans didn't think. We should not assume that they thought that, you know, that this object here was the God, right? It wasn't the God. It was the house of the God. It was the kind of the, the temporary body that a real entity came down inside of. And that's how we interacted with it. That's what they thought. They weren't as unsophisticated and stupid as we all assume they were. <laughs> okay. They didn't think that piece of wood was actually the God. But they worshipped it. All right. Do you think that, no, uh, he says, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Now, are demons real? Are those figments of our imaginations too? Do you believe the Bible? Okay, good. All right, so they're real. Things that the Gentiles sacrifice is sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Well, you can't, because they're make-believe. No, that's not what he's saying. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? So the, the thing about idolatry, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the whole assumption behind it is not that these are just make-believe things. What's wrong with you people? Don't you know that, the, that you know, the Easter bunny isn't real? That's never the point. The point is, oh, they're very real, but they're evil, and they're drawing you away from God, and you shall not have any other gods before me. He's not saying you shall not have any little dust bunnies you know, before me. You know what I'm saying? They're real. All right. Also in the New Testament. So you can't understand the history of Israel. You can't understand the nature of what's actually going on in the, in the struggle that we see unfolding all through the Old Testament. You also can't understand the work of Christ if, unless you acknowledge these beings as real. And here's one of the things that it says about what Jesus did. <clears throat> when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What is that talking about? This is, what, this is talking about 
what Jesus, one of the things that Jesus did on the cross. We always think of what he did on the cross in terms of our sin, right? He shed his blood for our sin, satisfied the wrath of God, turned away God's wrath by sacrificing himself. That's what the Bible teaches about the cross, right? But it also teaches this. In the cross, in that sacrifice, he disarmed who? The rulers and the authorities. This, he's talking about the gods of the nations. And he disarmed them, took away their power, and then did what? Made a public display of them. There are other places that talk about him leading them in triumphant uh, procession. So in the ancient world, you all should have some inkling of this because you've seen movies and read books, I, I hope. I mean, you've read books, I hope. <laughs> but you can see this in your eye, in your mind's eye. When, when, the, when, the, when the, the general, the emperor, the whatever, the king in the ancient world conquered a place, what happened to the rulers of that place? Well, they got, um, they got marched out in front of everybody, right? For everybody to see, I won, you're my slaves now. We're gonna make a mockery of you, right? And, uh, and then we're gonna kill you. That's what happens. This is what everyone, again, who had any understanding of the world, you know, would have understood. This is what he's talking about. He conquered them. He leads them out, makes a public display of them. This is not a good thing, right? And uh, triumphs over them. That's part of what, that's part of the good news of the gospel. It's not just, I get to go to heaven when I die. It's all of our enemies, including these enemies, the gods of the nations, have been rendered powerless by the gospel, by, by, the, by the victory of Christ. Okay. That's the first major background reality that we have to see in order to understand what's going on in Genesis 2 and 3. And this will all become clear next week, trust me. There, are a, there is a... Uh, before the, the Lord God made man, he made an innumerable multitude of beings. Okay? Everyone with me? Are you buying, are you buying it? Okay, good. Here's the second one. This is the second main thing we have to understand. God gathers these beings around himself in a divine assembly or a divine council. All right? We've already seen this in one of the Psalms we've looked at, but we'll see it again. God gathers these beings around himself in a divine assembly or divine council. Remember what happens in Job, right at the beginning of the book of Job. What, what is this? Now there was a day when the sons of God, remember them? We've already seen that word or that term. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So this is a thing that, that happens and they came before the Lord. These sons of God, these are not men. 
right? Okay, so they come before the Lord to present themselves. Psalm 82. Look at this. I'm going to read the whole psalm. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now, the word, the Hebrew word translated rulers here is the Hebrew word Elohim. All right? Elohim. Did anyone, anyone recognize that word, Elohim? What, yeah, what, is, what does it mean? It is plural. That's the I-M ending means, makes it plural. This is, El can mean God. This is a word that is, who else is called Elohim in the Bible? God, the Lord God, the, the creator God, our God, is called Elohim. But he's not the only one called Elohim. All right? Um, back in this verse, the sons of God, this is sons of Elohim. That's the word there. B'nai Elohim, all right? So it's a, it's a word that is used for not one particular person, but a class of persons. Um, uh, you remember when Samuel, um, when, when King Saul calls up Samuel from the dead, from the witch at Endor? Samuel, at that point, is called, guess what? An Elohim. And that doesn't mean he's God, but he's a disembodied spirit. He's an inhabitant of the spirit world. Okay? That's, that's what that word means. And it can be applied to the true and living God because he is an inhabitant of the spirit world. It can be uncreated. It can mean angel. It can mean dead man. Right? Who still exists, but not in this world. Okay, so this is a bad translation. And I'll show you why in a second. God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are what? Elohim. It's the same word. He, take, he judges in the midst of the Elohim. I said, you're Elohim. This is why this is, that first instance is a bad translation. It's confusing. He's saying the same thing. When we read the first verse, we think, oh yeah, he's talking about civil magistrates or something. But he's not. I don't have time to get into prove that to you today. But he's not. All the foundations, I said, you are gods, all and, and all of you are sons of the Most High. That's, that's a title for these, these beings, right? Sons of God, sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. All right? There is a congregation that God gathers around himself made up of these beings. And they have responsibilities and they blew it. 
they, instead of promoting justice and righteousness on the earth, they do the opposite. All right, here's another one, Psalm 89. We saw this a minute ago, I think, or not, maybe not. Yeah, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? And a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. So you can see here, we know from both the Old Testament and New Testament, these are creatures that God made. He is infinitely above them, just as infinitely as he is above us. Okay? They're not self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God who created everything. They're creatures. They, made, he was made, they were made by him. And yet he gathers them around himself into an assembly, a council. Here's a weird one. First Kings, you kind of see this in action in First Kings 22. Micaiah is a prophet, right? And Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. You hear this kind of scene all over the Bible, okay? There's a throne, God is sitting on it, and all the host of heaven is standing there. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Who's he asking? All this, these assembled council of, of mighty, uh, of sons of God, right? Who will go up and, and entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. This is not a make-believe little fairy tale. We saw this in the book of Job, where the sons of God are gathered together and they're interacting and they're deciding things. They're saying, they're, you know, they're, they're interacting with one another. God, the Lord. And here he is. This actually is true. This happened. Okay? Here's another one. Daniel, chapter seven. I kept looking until thrones Thrones, plural, were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Again, this is not a fairy tale. This is real. There is a court. There are thrones. God is sitting on it. All the multitudes, thousands upon thousands of these beings that he made are there before him. And 
He's holding counsel with them. All right? You all with me? Do you see this in the Bible? Okay. Now, here's the weird thing. As if this isn't all weird. But it shouldn't be weird. It's just, it's, it's been there all along. If you've read the Bible, you've read this kind of stuff over and over and over and over and over and over again. I'm not making this up. This is just in the Bible, all right? It's not weird. It's weird for us because we're more materialists and naturalists. And we don't really believe in these kinds of things anymore, to our shame. But here's the, here's the weird thing. Not only are these gods, these sons of God, the host of heaven, not, not only are they part of God's assembly, sometimes flesh and blood men are there too. When the, Lord, when the Lord God gave the law to Moses, for example, it was a meeting of the divine council. All right? This is how it's portrayed in Scripture. Exodus 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. What in the world is going on? This is, the, this is exactly what you see in these visions of the divine council meeting. We've already seen some of them. There's a throne room. There's things like a, a pavement of sapphire, if you can imagine what that looks like. And they're meeting together. And they're meeting together and doing what? Eating and drinking. And the Lord has feet. <laughs> and they see him. That's interesting. Deuteronomy 32. Speaking, or 33. Speaking of that event, God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 33. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. You actually see the other parties of this council right there. He comes with 10,000 holy ones. You see this in the New Testament, Acts 7. You who received, Stephen says to the Israelites, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Galatians 3. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. They're associated with the giving of the law is the presence of these angels. This is a, so what we should think, I think, is that when Moses received the law and all those elders on Mount Sinai, they were trembling and they were freaking out. They had to sit there and eat and drink you know, in the presence of the divine assembly, all right? And here's the other thing. The true prophets of the Lord were welcomed into this divine council to speak face-to-face -face with the word of the Lord, the Son of God himself. Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, they are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. 
And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. Now look at this. He's talking about false prophets. Then he says, but who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? And then other places you see this. The prophet standing in the presence of the Lord. And it says he sees and hears the word. You remember what uh, John 1, 1 says? In the beginning was the word. This is the context of that kind of statement. The word of God, even in the Old Testament, is a person that can be seen and heard and can touch you. This is Jesus, right? In this council, and the prophets come up and stand there with him. Remember Isaiah 6? In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling his temple. Remember that passage? Well, who, who is this speaking? Isaiah the prophet. He's there in the throne room of God in the council. Now, guess who else stood in the divine council? Job 15. Were you the first man to be born? Well, who was the first man to be born? <laughs> Adam. Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit your wisdom to yourself? I believe Adam, as, the, as God's created king, man on the earth to rule over the earth, which we'll all see next week, was just, was a part of this council. And I'll explain why that's really important to next week. Now, we are out of time. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to breeze through the rest of this real quick here. Here's the last piece of background we have to understand before we talk about God's covenant with Adam. The divine assembly meets in special places. Um, both the true divine assembly, God's divine assembly, the real one, and um, ones that the rebels meet in, let's say. Always meet in special places. For example, mountains. All around the world, the gods come down and meet on tops of mountains. Think of Mount Olympus in Greece. Think of Mount Carmel where Elijah slaughtered the priests of Baal. Think of all the high places where the Israelites worship the gods of the land. Think of Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans thought they were to worship the Lord. Remember that? Think about Mount Sinai where God met with Moses. We just saw. Think about Mount Zion where the Lord put his temple. Think about the mountain of transfiguration. Probably Mount Hermon, where Jesus was transfigured and met with Moses and Elijah. Think of all the man-made mountains literally around the world. If you don't have a mountain, what do we do? We make them. That's what we do. That's what the Tower of Babel was. That's what pyramids are. They're man-made mountains. Why? Because gods, the gods meet with us on mountains. There are no mountains. Okay, let's make one. <laughs> Shows you the length to which we will go. This is a deep-seated truth. Gods, the God, God and the gods meet with us <clears throat> on mountains. You'll also find other special places. The source of rivers and in a temple adorned with precious stones and paved with sapphire around God's throne. We've seen a couple of instances of that already. But the same thing is true of gardens. Gardens. Okay. Now you see where I'm going? The same thing is also true of gardens. 
Um, you see even pagan worship going on in gardens, Isaiah 65, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. You see that all over the place. So in this context, when we read about a garden in Eden, where did God put, gar- put Adam? He put him in a garden. And it says in, he- in Genesis 2, the garden was in Eden. The garden is not Eden. The garden is in Eden. Eden is a p- bigger place. The garden is a smaller place within it. And when we th- read about a garden in Eden, I can almost guarantee that we have the wrong thing in mind. We think of gardens as a place to grow flowers and vegetables, maybe a nice little pond and maybe a park bench to watch the birdies, you know, a nice little garden. Yeah, wasn't it really nice? Adam got to live in a garden. But in this kind of context, the garden is much more than that. In the world of the Bible, a garden was one of the dwelling places of the gods. And that's what this garden is. It's not a little park with a manicured lawn and some flowers and maybe some tomato plants, you know. It's a place on earth where the Lord God meets with the assembly of his holy ones. All right. Let me read one last passage and we'll be done. Many of these, let's call them, uh, let's call them memes. You all know what a meme is, right? It's a picture that, I hate them, but there's a picture that comes, that brings up an idea. All right, think about this as memes. Look at this. Some of these come together. Many of them come together in Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Oh, wait, I thought you said the garden, I thought you said the garden of Eden. Yeah. The holy mountain of God. Yeah. These, you're right, these things all go together. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. I believe that the Garden of Eden was just such a place, an earthly place where the Lord Lord God met with his sons, both angels and men. Adam, man. Now next week, (laughs) we'll see why all of this is very important. Okay? Trust me, it's all very important. And we'll actually understand, I think, much better what's actually going on in Genesis 2 and 3 with this background in mind. All right? You got to wait. Got to wait to the cliffhanger. Okay. Sorry. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, make, make us believe your word and rescue us from the the poison fog of modernism and naturalism and materialism. And let us actually believe what your word says. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.